Well, good morning. How are we doing? Um, there's a guy in the room, Tim Osborne. You can say hi to him later. Tim is the pastor of Mosaic, the Christian Missionary Alliance in downtown Portland, uh, and heads up the network of Alliance churches working together in the city to plant churches and reach out overseas. Um, I don't know, you're kind of like a combination between a friend and my boss. It feels like. <laughs> I feel like my boss is here checking up on me this morning. So um, thanks for coming and, and being with us. We love you. Um, so we're in Advent. Advent is really, as we've talked about every week, Advent is about reorienting ourselves to the right story in this time of the year. Um, so I want to do something a little different this morning. We're going to root ourselves in a couple of different stories um, and, and so part one is the Advent story, is the story that we're supposed to celebrate. Um, the other story that I want to orient is in this morning, uh, for a little bit of context, you know, at a time in the world like this, we tend to have stories that we tell ourselves and tell others about the state of the world and the state of the city that we're a part of. Um, and as I was preparing for this message, there was a story that many of you will be familiar with that I wanted to remind us of as an illustration of what we're going to talk about today, but to remind us of the heritage of this part of the world that we live in. Um, we don't always celebrate the right stories. So I'm going to put a picture up on the board here. I don't know if anyone, does anyone recognize this face? You'll recognize the name most likely. This is a man called Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was born in Portland, Oregon, went to school at Benson High School in Portland, Oregon. He, uh, when he was 24 years old, he responded to the missionary call. He left Oregon and moved to Ecuador. Uh, he started out in Quito to work uh, with the the Waurani people. And so this was a group of people who were savages. They, they were people known to kill any stranger that entered their territory. Um, but this guy, compelled by the love of God, decided that he was going to leave everything behind. He was going to head into Auka territory and focus on this people group that had been known to kill people. So him, along with four other friends, um, there's a great book but, uh, about Nate Saint. Nate Saint was the, the pilot. So there's a book called Jungle Pilot, which is the biography of Nate Saint. Probably of all the characters that you can read about in biographies, Nate Saint is my favorite. It's not my favorite biography, but he's my favorite character to read about. Um, so these four guys head out into this territory and they come up with this God-given plan. And so what they do is they spend time learning the language. They, they spend time learning Spanish, first of all. And then they, they, they learn the regional language. And then they start figuring out the language of this, of this people group. And, and how they do this is Nate Saint comes up with this idea, let's, let's fly over their territory and every time we fly over, let's lower a basket down or a bucket down with gifts in it so that these people start to associate our kindness and generosity in these gifts with this plane that comes flying overhead. So regularly they would fly over, they would find the people, they'd come low, they'd drop this basket out of the plane. How on earth they manage that, I have no idea. Um, we'll leave that to Nate Saint, the epic super pilot, to do that. Um, and people would get these gifts and then a few days later they'd go flying back again and they'd see people wearing the clothes that they gave, wearing the hats that they gave, using the tools that they gave. And so regularly for a period of time they'd stop, they'd drop the bucket, they'd give gifts. 
um, there had never been an interaction with these people where the, the, the outsider was not killed. And so they came up with the next plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave gifts for multiple days in a row in the same bay. And we're going to guide these people. So every day they're going to come to this bay and they're going to collect these gifts. So they leave gifts in the same bay every day. Um, and, they, and then one day they're like, so this one day we're going to land in this bay. Um, and then we're going to interact with these people. So one day they see these two women have come and they land their plane and they have an interaction with these two women. They can't speak to them. So they're, they're, they're having like sign language interactions and trying to tell the people, what we want you to do is we're going to come back and we want you to bring all of the village to hear about Jesus. So they go away and, and there's this day that they're very excited about, January the 8th, 1958. So we're almost at the anniversary of it. Um, and, and they decide well, we're going to go and we're going to go back and we're going to meet these people. And we're the first people that are going to have interactions with this savage people group. And we're going to share the gospel and they come to faith. And if you know the story, they, they do this day, they arrive at the beach, the women are there. Um, they interact with the women, they get excited, they tell them go bring more people. And while they're interacting, a group of warriors comes up on the other side and Jim Elliot has a moment where he grabs hold of the gun in his pocket and he says like these people are coming to kill us do I shoot them or not and he makes the decision we committed that no Alka or no Warani person will, will die by our hand and so he doesn't pull his gun out of his pocket and he's speared to death along with his four co-workers on the shore in Ecuador and it went around the world like in the UK people were hearing about this person uh, who uh, amazes me is from here, right? He's from Portland, Oregon. A lot of the time we don't even realize that this is part of the heritage of our city. That a young kid raised in the Portland metro area heard the gospel, heard testimonies of missionaries, was willing to give up his life uh, to go to a people group that he had no interaction with and, and so committed to, to the story of God and what that asks of us that he was willing to go and risk his life and ultimately lay down his life uh, in obedience to the Lord. Uh, for those who don't know this story, there's some great books, uh, Shadow of the Almighty, End of the Spear. You can actually read, they've published uh, Jim Elliott's journals. Um, but to, to spoil the end of the story or to give you hope in the end of the story, it doesn't end there. Jim's wife and child decide that they're going to offer radical forgiveness to this community that kill uh, the husband and the father. And they end up moving into this place and become the catalytic people that God uses to reach that people with the gospel. And so now that people group walks with Jesus uh, because of the sacrifice of this man. So as we're thinking about the Christmas story, um, as we're thinking about the Christmas season, Christmas season is hard, right? There's loss, there's pain, there's difficulty, there's sacrifice. Uh, we think about the beauty of the Christmas season that we're supposed to be called into and, and all of the ways that we talk about Christmas, this beautiful family dinner where everyone's happy and nothing ever goes wrong. Um, and then we think alongside that of the story of the world right now and we look at what's going on and we think, man, this is a horrible place. There's no hope for this world in recent history. We've got these stories of people from our area living radically for the gospel. And we have many stories of people from this part of the world that are currently, I've got friends right now that are heading over to the border of Russia and Ukraine to do ministry in a place that's being bombed right now in order to try and bring hope to people that are damaged by war. There are people all around the world right now from our area living radically the gospel. And sadly, it's not the story the church tends to be telling. I think we've got to take more time to celebrate 
about these kinds of stories. We could list stories galore. We could talk about Mother Teresa as she uh, lived in this little tiny space in India that became a world-renowned name because she was willing to love the people around about her. We could talk about people that you don't know, like Linda Burns, then Brandon, my mom, who was a single mom raising three kids, making sacrifices, trying to raise us in the faith uh, and getting it wrong. And we've all got stories of people Uh, And there are people in the neighborhood around us. Like we drive past houses here where there are people trying to live out their faith, trying to love the family around them, making sacrifices, getting it wrong. So many stories. Uh, We need to celebrate these more, right? I, I want us as a church to be a church that celebrates the stories of what God's doing, not one that's fixated on the brokenness that we see around us. So with that in mind, let's let's look at the start of Luke 2. Um, probably it's one of the most powerful moments of scripture and it's one of the lamest parts of the Bible, right, in, in my opinion. The birth of Jesus. Look how anticlimactic this moment is in scripture. Let's look here uh, and then we'll jump out of there into what we're talking about today. So Luke 2, starting at verse 1 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. How many people in here like to read books about censuses? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Uh, everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So the story is setting up that this person is part of the royal lineage. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Just note that one verse. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there's no guest room available for them. That is the Bible's declaration of the greatest moment in human history. In the middle of some talk about a census. Great, thank you for that one. Let me look at, you know, we're familiar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they're writing, they're writing narratives, they've collected stories. They want us to understand exactly what happened and and understand the details around it. John, when he's writing, is writing much more theologically. So he's trying to give us the explanation for why things happened the way that they did. And so his framing is always different. So this is John's version of that same verse. John chapter 1 verse 14, he said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And the version of it that's probably become the most famous in recent years is is the, the version in the message, which simply says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is the story that we're celebrating, the word becoming flesh and moving in to our neighborhood. So through Advent, we're looking at different themes. Uh, The theme for this week is the theme of love. Um, And so I want to do uh, this, I'm going to do it a little bit differently to how we've we've done this in in the weeks so far. But let me start with a couple of key questions uh, that, that shape how we have to think about this topic. So two questions are these, what is love? And then the second question, which is in part or perhaps the most important one, who or what gets to define what love looks like? Right? There are lots of people in the world right now that will tell us what love is supposed to be, how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to function. 
if our definition of love is not informed by the word of God, we will not love in the way of God, right? Simple. If our definition of love is not informed by the word of God, then we're not going to walk in the way of God. So we're going to obviously look at the Bible to understand some elements of love. But rather than what I normally do is give you a bunch of scripture and then we pull some principles out of it. There's a lot of things I've been reading over and listening to over the last few months and quotes and phrases that I have been chewing on um, around the topic of love. So I'm going to, I'm going to have some some scripture references, but I want to focus on some key writings around love um, to reshape how we think about this topic. And so there's three elements of love that are going to be really obvious. As always, remember, my job is to teach you what the Bible obviously says. So as long as it's obvious, I'm in the right territory, but then we're going to expand on these, hopefully, uh, to challenge us in the way we're living this Christmas season. So the first element of love that we've got to consider is, is simply this, love takes action. That verse that we just put on the screen, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We know how the story goes, right? Philippians 2, God did, did not con- Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't stay in heaven being worshipped and in perfect fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he took action. And it says that he emptied himself and made himself nothing and entered the world and took on the nature of a servant and sacrificed himself on our behalf. His love mobilized him to act. So love, in a season like this, when we're talking about what does love look like in the Advent season, love should always take action. It should always mobilize us to move out into the world. If you read 1 John 1 and 1 John 2, in both letters, John writes and he says, this is what love is, that we obey God's commands. Love for God will force us to take action in obedience to the commands that he gives us. It's that kind of action, it's that kind of love that made someone like Jim Elliott say, I'm willing to leave the comfort of Portland, Oregon to go to a people who might kill me for the sake of the gospel because I believe that God is telling me to do this and so I'm going to spend my life on behalf of these people. Love takes action. I'm in a place right now where I'm wrestling with the identity of our church. We, for years, the church website, when you would log into the website, it would say, your neighborhood church. I was listening to someone speaking the other day, and and they were talking about their church, and they said, you know, I'm wrestling with the fact our church isn't so much a neighborhood church as it is a regional church. Because the people used to live in the neighborhood and now they don't. And so are you a neighborhood church if the people in the church don't live in the neighborhood? And how do you reach the neighborhood if the people in the church are spread all over? So we've always said we're a neighborhood church, but perhaps we're not. Perhaps we're a regional church, right? But God has placed us right here in the middle of a neighborhood. And this passage says the word became flesh and it moved into the neighborhood. So I found myself thinking, you know, You live somewhere and then job changes, life changes, you make more money and your house comes up for sale and we move. I found myself asking, if we're a neighborhood church, how many people in the room would be willing to move back into the neighborhood to reach the people in the neighborhood? Now, we've said we're a church that wants to reach our neighborhood. We've, like, when I walked into this role, I heard all the time, we're praying for a Bentley Street revival. 
It's like hard to have a Bentley Street revival where no one's here interacting with the people on Bentley Street, right? So I just, I'm not saying move into the neighborhood. I'm just asking, what are you willing to do in order to reach the people that God has placed around us? What is the, what is the action that you're willing or not willing to take? How many people, if we said, like, God wants to reach a certain demographic within our neighborhood, how many people would be willing to sell or rent out the house that they're currently living in to move into an apartment complex that's full of people that have come from internationally so that you can reach them with the gospel in the hopes of sending them back to their countries as missionaries? Yeah, I know there's at least one person in here that would do that. (laughs) Love takes action. And a lot of the time what we say is, yeah, I want to be about these things. I want to reach the neighborhood. I want to reach people for the kingdom. I want to see missionaries sent back across the world. But my action is going to be my checkbook, right? I'm going to sit back and do nothing. I'm going to write checks out of the excess that I have. And it's never actually going to touch me in a hard way. What are we willing to do to take action to do the things that God is calling us to do in this season? You know, perhaps harder than leaving your house and moving into a neighborhood, how many people are willing to apologize (laughs) or extend forgiveness to someone when you sit at the table with them this holiday season? We say we love them. We say we want reconciliation, but are we willing to take the action that those things demand of us? Our culture seems to think we can love without action. Our culture seems to think that our actions can be selfish. But love requires action, and it's often not the action we want to spend. I, uh, I've been listening to a podcast. There's a book called The, 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 uh, the Power of Place by Paul Groth. Um, he, in this podcast episode, someone was interviewing him, and he makes this statement in the podcast. He says, love makes a big difference when it gets small. You're like, What? Love makes a big difference when it gets small. He says, you know, when we decide, I'm going to change the world. I, Scott Burns, I'm going to solve world hunger. I might be able to make some steps towards that, but the impact that I'm going to make is not very big. But if I, Scott Burns, I'm walking down the street and I see someone homeless at the side of the road and I say, I'm going to commit to every day bringing this person something to eat, I can make a big difference in that person's life. So love makes the biggest difference when it gets really small. So that means, what does love look like for you? It means, uh, what is smaller for you? What is the person that God is calling you to love? What's the place that he's asking you to invest in? For us as a church, we can't say we're gonna impact the entire world. We have to say we're gonna start with our neighbors. Uh, We're gonna pick a place that we're gonna invest in uh, overseas. We're gonna pick one place and we're gonna invest deeply. Um, I can't change the world but I can impact Monica and Ella and Ewan and Skye and my neighbor Leif. So what action are you willing to take of this season to extend the kind of love that Jesus asks us to give? The second element of love, love gives freely. So 1 John chapters 4 and 5 have some great explanations of love. But it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Other scripture tells us it's better to give than it is to receive. We're celebrating Advent, the story of God giving lavishly himself for us. If you think about 
uh, a big impact by loving small. Uh, he was coming to redeem the world by entering into the life of this tiny baby in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem in the middle of Israel. He loved the disciples that he called around him and through that was able to reach the world. This is backwards from what the, the culture tells us, right? The culture tells us that, that when you love, your needs are met. That you've got to find someone that will meet your needs, that will serve you the way that you should be served. Um, the culture is not saying go out there and find a person that you can give radically to. Now, true love is reciprocal. Uh, where I give to you and you give to me and through that both people are, are cherished and edified and built up. But love is always giving. Um, God is always self-giving. You go back to the beginning, right? We read the beginning of the Bible and we say Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And we start salvation history from that moment. But you've got to remember that before that moment when he created the earth, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, constantly giving love to each other. It wasn't like I'm here at God the Father and I'm just gonna take, take, take from, from Son and Spirit. They were in a relationship of mutual love, giving and serving one another. And out of that overflow of love, they created this world that we we're a part of because they wanted us to share in it. And they wanted us to live in the world in the posture that they live in, that we would give freely and give generously to the people around about us. And through that, that people would be drawn in to this love-dance relationship that the Trinity invites us into. So to give freely is to walk in the posture of generosity, is to walk in the posture of kindness towards people. It's hospitality that we talk about here as a church, it's being willing to welcome people in and then being willing to go and cross barriers uh, to show love to other people. It's been willing to stand in the truth that's willing to offer forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. We're called to give freely. You have the hints of this in the Christmas story. The one that we, we love the most and celebrate the most in this domain is the wise men as they come to Jesus and they bring their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we look at them and go, let's follow in their example and give gifts to one another in celebration of our love. But maybe we should be more like Mary who gave life, who was willing to sacrifice her comfort, who was willing to sacrifice her reputation, uh, as Kimmy's mom said to me last week, did you think about how Joseph felt when he walked out in the community and everyone's like, your daughter's pregnant and she thinks it was a ghost, right? The sacrifices that they made to love and protect and care for and nourish and shepherd and give, is that the kind of love that we're given this Christmas? And what tends to happen is we give gifts and we think the, the, the more expensive the gift is, the more love that we are showing when the people around us want our affection. As we talked about in the previous series, they want our blessing spoken over them to give them hope as we move forward. So how are you doing this Christmas at giving freely and generously and kindly to the people around us? Klaus Sissler, I've mentioned this book numerous times, so if you don't recognize the name of the book, you've not been listening well enough. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, this book and his descriptions of love rocked me. 
Um, so I, I'm going to put two quotes up from here that I want us to think about as we think about how we love and give freely to the people around us. Love of God essentially is affected by our emotional and our psychological well-being. So he says, for believers, the level of intimacy we experience with God is largely affected by and limited to the depth of intimacy we experience in our human friendships. So whatever level of intimacy you are having with the people around you is the cap of your capacity to engage in intimacy with God. Now, the beauty is God is going to move in us and expand our heart's capacity, which comes through often pain and sacrifice and learning to love the people around about us. But your human capacity to love caps your ability to experience intimacy with God. So here's a fuller quote that I, uh, I read this years ago. I shared this in a sermon two years ago in the Praying with Paul series. I am still chewing on this passage. Um, This is what he says. Within any relationship between two persons involving different levels of maturity, the lesser intimate and lesser mature person sets the boundary for how intimate the friendship can become as illustrated in the relationship between a parent and a teenager. The more mature member is capable of greater intimacy but the immature member cannot rise above his or her own present relational and emotional limitations. Similarly, in a relationship with God, the believer, the limited member, is always the weaker party. Therefore, the more a believer develops mature relational and emotional competences, the more he or she can enter into a richer love relationship with God. You're about to walk to dinner tables for Christmas. And I know that the minute that happens, it's already started happening, stuff gets stirred up. Uh, I just went home uh, to be there at the end of my mom's life and then back for the funeral, being home in a high-stress environment where people are grieving stirs up stuff. There is a gift that you're about to be given over Christmas or being back around difficult circumstances, or feeling alone because of the loss that you have, is going to surface some brokenness in your life that limits your capacity to have intimacy with the people around about you, and is capping the level of intimacy that you can have with God. And there's a couple of ways that we can deal with it. Option number one is you go into that situation and and you strop and you run off and you fight with people and you voice your frustration uh, and and then you come back and you just squish it away and ignore it all or vent about it to the people around about you. Or you can say, God, what is it in this that you want me to engage that's going to teach me more about you and more about me and make me more the kind of lover that you're calling me to be? There are people sitting in the room saying, I want to feel like God loves me more. I want to be a more loving person. What Klaus Isler is saying, what popular psychology is saying, what the Bible is saying is without healing in our life, we can't get any deeper or further than we are. So for some of you, the greatest gift you're going to be able to give your family this Christmas is to jump online and find a good counselor and spend some time in a therapist's office surfacing these issues and dealing with them so that you can love your family better and through that have a greater capacity to respond to the kind of love that God wants to give us. I think all of us want to be able to give freely. To be able to give freely, we have to learn to receive freely 
And we can't receive love freely when our hearts are hardened because of the woundedness that we feel and we're self-protecting against the people around about us. So for some of you, I've said this before, I think everyone in the church should go see a counselor, a good one. There are bad counselors that won't do any benefit. I think if every person in our church went to see a therapist to heal some of the broken areas of our life, we would be far more equipped to love one another to love the people out there and to be able to receive the kind of love that God wants to pour into our hearts. The caveat in all of that is God is a God of miracles, right? And one moment through something that is said in a sermon, through a prayer that someone offers, through something you read in a book, in one moment, God can break into your life and bring a whole bunch of healing that catalyzes growth and intimacy moving forward. But that's not the way that we're supposed to live depending on it. Miracles are miracles because they happen Moment by moment, we use the other resources that God gives us around us, the community of God, the healers in the church, uh, and those systems to get the healing we need in our order to move forward. So second element is that love gives freely, and sometimes we need a bit of help in our lives to be able to love freely the way God intends us to love. Final element is the one that we, uh, we cite most often and the one that we find the hardest to do. Love is sacrificial. John, in his first letter, puts it this way. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another, and this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And it's not just about that. There's material stuff. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. He's saying, there is no love without sacrifice. There is no love without cost. Jim Elliot, when he wrote in his journal, probably his his most famous quote, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yet we're in a season where we're trying to accumulate and keep all this stuff while losing our souls rather than be willing to sacrifice in order to get what we really need, which is Christ-likeness flowing through our veins. I'm also reading a biography of a, a Saint, Saint Therese of Lisieux. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, <laughs> someone gave me a book about her, and then I went looking at biographies of her because I wanted more information. And then when I was looking for the biography and I found the biography I'm currently reading, it said the most sold biography in the church. Like it's the most purchased biography. And I'm like, I've never heard of her. <laughs> um, but it turns out there's a lot of Catholics and Orthodox people out there that buy a lot of books. And so this woman's life is one that has impacted people most. Um, what level of sacrifice are you willing to engage in as you follow Jesus? She says this, one can be a saint in varying degrees. We are free to respond to our Lord's invitation by doing much or little in our love for him, to choose, that is, among the sacrifices that he asks of us. I love this quote. I'm chewing on it because of the word free. We are free in our relationship with God to do as much as we want to do or as little as we want to do. How saint-like we are or how Christ-like we are is the result. So you can choose to sacrifice little and look a little like Jesus in the world 
we can choose to sacrifice greatly in the ways that God is asking us to and look a lot like Jesus in the world. And I know that the people that look a lot like Jesus in the world are the ones that have the biggest impact for the kingdom. So then there's a choice. Do you want to sacrifice little or do you want to sacrifice much? Are you willing to write a check that's not just an excess but cuts into what you need in order to bless someone else? Are you willing to leave the job that you're in that pays you well and has good prospects to enter ministry or serve with a nonprofit? Are you willing to leave the comfort of the house that you've built a life in to move into an apartment complex to minister to people that don't know Jesus? Are you willing to go to the ends of the earth like Jim Elliot and sacrifice your life for the sake of the gospel? Let's bring it home a little bit. This Christmas... Are you willing to walk up to someone that's hurt you and say, I forgive you? Are you willing to apologize for something that you've done wrong, that you've been too proud to admit? Are you willing to call family members, perhaps your kids, and say, I failed you as you were growing up and I'm sorry for the ways I didn't parent you well? What sacrifices are we willing to give this Christmas? So what does love look like? I mean, we could, we could list hundreds of ways that love looks Um, But love always acts, it always gives freely, and it's always sacrificial. So that's why at a season like this, we return to the Christmas story. The story of the creator of the universe being willing to leave the glory and splendor of a realm unmarred by sin and a relationship that is just fully pure, flawless, self-giving love to enter our world and our brokenness to invite us into a place of healing and wholeness and reconciliation. And then to die, to rescue us from our sins, to be raised from the dead and to pour out his spirit into us to enable us in these moments to sit at a dinner table and choose forgiveness when we don't want to, to look at our bank account and choose generosity when it hurts, to look at the comfort of the culture around us and say, I'm willing to go or to decide I'm going to move into the neighborhood so that the word can become flesh and blood to the people that need them the most. Let me pray. God, love is the easiest trait to think about and to celebrate and say we're about as the church, but the hardest one to actually put into practice. And the kind of love that you demonstrate to us, the level of extravagance, the level of patience, the level of self-emptying and sacrifice, uh, the level of ridicule that you put up with and scorn that you faced in order to bring love and blessing, Lord, we can't do it. And so I thank you that you pour love into our hearts by your spirit. I thank you that you bear fruit in us. I thank you that you give us a capacity beyond our own to live the way you want us to live. And so we thank you for your love. Thank you that you are in our neighborhood and you didn't just move into our neighborhood, you moved into our lives. You didn't just move into our lives, you live in our heart That's the level of intimacy you want with us. So God, help us to walk out into the world as agents of love in the way of Jesus to bring transformation for your name we pray. Amen.